the Lord be with you and also with you. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In virtual worship, our sanctuary empty, we gather this first Sunday in Advent. Let us worship God in spirit and in truth. The liturgy, music, and sermon are offered in the praise of God for our virtual congregation through WBUR 90.9 FM and our listenership now and later at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of leadership, ministry, and service in our midst. And as the Spirit moves, and when again it is permitted and safe to do so, your presence with us here in worship Please note on our website the particular programs, educational offerings, and forms of personal and pastoral support available this week. We welcome with joy and gratitude our preacher this morning, the Reverend Dr. Robert Cummings Neville, Dean Emeritus of Marsh Chapel. Today's service of worship includes his sermon recorded November 24th, along with music and liturgy rebroadcast from earlier services. Although our nave is empty, the music is full. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it.
May we pray. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. A lesson from the book of Isaiah. Chapter 64, verses 1 to 9. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There was no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
A lesson from St. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us say responsively verses from Psalm 80 with the antiphon. shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph's people like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before the tribes of Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. in body as you are able, but certainly in heart, for the singing of the Gloria, the reading of the Gospel, and the singing of our hymn.
gospel for today is from the 13th chapter of Mark, verses 24 through 37. But in those days, after suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the four ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeepers to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake.
deeply grateful to the Reverend Dr. Hill for asking me to preach this first Sunday of Advent. He wants me to start off the whole Christian calendar, but the assignment for the week are not kindly or comforting, not likely to be good for this time of COVID-19 and governmental crises. Even Paul's paragraph from 1 Corinthians says only that they have been given the word that should stand them in good stead at the end of time. And then he immediately goes off on the Corinthians for involving too many sources. I suppose the celebration of Advent here consists in this one reference to Jesus Christ into whose fellowship Paul has introduced the Corinthians. Now, when, when I was a young adolescent, I thought the following was an outrageously funny joke. A man saw three holes in the ground and said, well, well, well. Nowadays, I suppose nobody thinks of wells as holes in the ground, but it was very funny back then. Today in Advent, I want to talk modestly about holes in our intellectual ground. I'm not going to speak of these holes abstractly, but they are not only abstract. As Christians, we recognize them uh, as holes in the doctrine of the Trinity, the Son, the Spirit, and even the Father. Isn't it astonishing, however, to refer to the Trinitarian persons as holes after all, these persons name the basic contours of the faith. All the other doctrines, stories, songs, and celebrations are elaborations of the persons of the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. Now, the usual order is to list them Father, Son, and Spirit. But I'm going to change that for Advent to start with the Son, then with the spirit as the animator of the religious community, and finally with the father as the universal creator acknowledged by many, if not all, communities. Instead of seeing these persons as the most positive general doctrines of the faith, I confess with embarrassment to seeing them as having some holes. How astonishing. But consider, Belief in Jesus as the Son of God is the most distinctive of Christian doctrines. Of course, it's extremely varied. The Gospel of Mark treats Jesus as a man adopted by God for a larger salvific purpose. The Gospel does not even have a proper post-resurrection scene. The Gospel of Matthew is addressed to the Jews who surrounded Jesus and focuses mainly on how Jesus amended the Jewish teachings. It traces Jesus' ancestry back to Abraham, the founder of Judaism. The Gospel of Luke was addressed to Gentile followers of Jesus and traces his ancestry all the way back to Seth, Adam, and God with claims for Jesus' universality. The Gospel of John tells a very different story from the first three Gospels, beginning with a metaphysical sermon on the creation, 
that claims that the word or logos that God spoke was itself incarnate in the person of Jesus. Then John moves to a very personal account of Jesus' friendships and enemies. It ends with a very long sermon, Jesus' crucifixion, and then his appearance first in Jerusalem, and then at the Sea of Tiberias. Paul wrote about Jesus almost exclusively as a metaphysical antidote to the judgment of the Jews. The second man, Adam, responding to the first. He said almost nothing about the biographical details that interested the Gospels. In post-testamental times, Jesus was interpreted in terms of Greek thought, with many variations in how he could be both God and man. Augustine recognized the difficulties of giving a straightforward interpretation of the scriptures and interpreted Jesus according to his own categories. Aquinas adopted many of these strategies of interpretation and embedded the highly interpreted Jesus in the dense fabric of his ethics. Schleiermacher treated Jesus as the best example of a God-intoxicated person. Bultmann thought of Jesus as an historical figure who was given a highly sophisticated interpretation by the thinkers of his context. But in all of these, from the Gospelers to the 20th century, Jesus was interpreted as the Son of God, whatever that might mean. Some of you longtime members of this church have heard my interpretations of Jesus over the years, drawing heavily on Tillich's thought set in a much wider context. Now, without for a moment suggesting that a consistent story is true about Jesus, I want to make clear that I have a consistent story, or at least consistent more or less. It begins with John's Gospel that swings from metaphysics to friendship, and it has nearly always two storylines, one that is for the masses and one for sophisticated Christians. I follow that story through history to our own day, but is this not still only speculation? <clears throat> so I have an interpretive point of view for which I can argue vigorously. Is it still not merely an argument? Don't I recognize the power of many other interpretations, particularly more fundamentalistic ones? Don't I recognize that the finer my interpretations, the fewer people agree with me? Of course, I do. Moreover, the existential meaning of Jesus is itself speculative. How many people have believed that faith in Jesus will get them into heaven? Uh, I'm afraid I don't even believe in heaven as a place for afterlife experiences. How many people have believed that Jesus is the judgment of God, rewarding the good and punishing the evil? I'm afraid I believe that evil is to be endured, but is not worth punishing. How many people have believed that everyone is saved in the end through faith in Jesus? I'm a little worried about the meaning of salvation. 
Now, I'll bet a lot of you share my doubts about Jesus. In church, everything is fine because we know that the language of the liturgy, even of the preaching, is mainly metaphorical. But when pressed, how much can we affirm that Jesus is the Son of God? Not much. And this is where the doctrine of Jesus as Son of God has holes in it. Your holes might be different from mine. Nevertheless, at some point, when pressed, or at night, or when faced with COVID-19, I'll bet you just get quiet and say someone else had better figure it out because you've got good Christian work to do. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is equally full of holes. It began with the Gospel of John's introduction that took the form of a special midrashic sermon based on two texts. The primary text was the first part of Genesis that said that the universe was created by God speaking. This poses a question. Is God a person, unified whether speaking or not? Or is God whole only prior to speaking so that the speech was an addition? On this latter view, the speech was divine but secondary, that through which all things were made. This latter was the view held by John and the early Christians. John's second text was the reference to Lady Wisdom in Ecclesiastes and the intertestamental writings as being neglected. Finally, God made his speech, or logos, incarnate in the person of Jesus, who was himself treated very badly. But then John's text shifts to the biographical details of Jesus' life. The book of Acts records how on Pentecost Day, the Holy Spirit descended to the disciples in tongues of fire on their heads, giving them wisdom and the power to speak in all the languages represented in their audience. This marks the beginning of an association of the Holy Spirit with the church that has come down to the present day. But Paul Tillich went so far as to say that the church is not the real church unless the spirit is present. The holes in the person of the spirit have lapped around the doctrine since its beginning. When we look to the spirit to give us a divine authority for anything we want to say, it is surely full of holes. Backing off from the Son and the Holy Spirit, the person of the Father is extremely general. The adoption of Greek thinking gave the Christians plenty of room to speculate on God as creator. Aquinas defended the Neoplatonic view that God is infinite and that the creation is finite and made from the infinite. Calvin too said that God is infinite. Schleiermacher and Tillich were somewhat vague about whether God is full or empty. West Asian religions have tried to carry over the personal characteristics of intentionality and wisdom to God 
even when God is officially beyond real characters. South Asian religions instead have taken the intentionality line to be a great mistake and have pushed for consciousness in some pure state to be the nature of God. The East Asians have given up just about all uses of the metaphor of the person for God and have talked about nature giving rise spontaneously to determinate things. The Chinese have been naturalistic rather than theistic in their theology. All traditions have tried to claim that some connotation of finite characteristics remain with God even when God is pushed to indeterminateness. At least this is the way that I read the intellectual progress of religions. Now I don't know how far you want to go with me in this adventure of conceiving God. Most Christians want to hold on to some kind of intentionality in God and are reluctant to give up a vague claim that God acts with purpose or has hopes for us. But remember the intellectual pressures pushed to an extreme? Remember the dark night? Remember COVID-19? Perhaps you would be willing to give up the view that God is a being, a thing, and consider God to be an act of creation? God as act is the original element of creation, not something prior. God is the creating of all things. The things are the product of the act. The act is eternal because all time is created. Anything to be honored, prayed to, or located as present or absent is part of creation. God is God only because of creation. God as act is known only with the creation and not before the act. Now, do you want to follow me in this? To my mind, God is good only because the act creates determinate things, all of which are good, each in its own way. To be a determinate thing, a thing is good just by itself. But no thing is just by itself, it is also with other things. God is the source of evil only because these goods inhibit one another and conflict. This is just the way determinate things are, I think. Most of the goods and evils of human life are rather local, and we do the best we can although what we can do and fail surely counts. But we count only proximately, not ultimately. Ultimately, we are all good in just the way we are. Well, mine is a fairly extreme view. If you come with me, welcome. If not, I encourage your belief. But remember, this is all just speculation, however sophisticated. It's the best that I can do. I presume on the basis of past experience that it is an hypothesis that will be su 
superseded by a better hypothesis someday. From my standpoint, all previous hypotheses have fallen short and been superseded. So why not mine? Surely there are holes in my hypothesis of the Father as the ultimate sheer act of creation, inseparable from the creation itself. I do not know what they are, but I fear them. By happy days, I work on my hypothesis, but when pressed ultimately in the ultimate dark or even ultimately depressed by the virus, I am ultimately afraid. Of course, now it is daytime and light, and so I am only referring to my fears, not exhibiting them. Now, what did Jesus say about this situation? He said, take courage. I have conquered the world. According to John, he said this toward the end of his long speech just before his arrest, a speech so complex and contradictory, no one really understands him. Take courage. I have conquered the world. He said it after warning that his disciples would face persecution, as we all do, whether we believe anything or nothing. Take courage. I have conquered the world. He said it whether or not we believe in his later resurrection after crucifixion. Take courage. I have conquered the world. He said it whether or not he actually said it, which he probably did not. Take courage. I have conquered the world. He said it even if the whole story of his life, even if the rumors of the Holy Spirit, even if his belief in the huge God beyond all reckoning is false. Take courage. I have conquered the world. He said it even if there are holes in our best theories, even if there are holes at the roots of our life's determination, even if there are holes in the God beyond gods, take courage, I have conquered the world. Even if there are holes in every theory we have thought, in every theory we now think, in every theory anyone shall ever think, Jesus says, Take courage, I have conquered the world. I have conquered the world refers to the past, to what Jesus has done and endured. Whatever happens in his future, including crucifixion and resurrection, and looking down from heaven on his church, count as nothing because he has already conquered. Take courage refers to his disciples, to us, and to everyone from now on. It means that whatever happens comes from God and is good, and that we should anticipate it with joy. Even if the world is ultimately destroyed, we have had enough. We are satisfied. Even if my ultimate hypothesis, according to which God is the act of creation and the creation is ultimately good, is mistaken, we have had enough. 
We have had enough in our local circumstance, even if we are locally evil, and we have had enough in ultimate perspective. Do not give up when things go bad. Have courage. Well, 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 three holes in the ground, three holes in our best understanding of what is ultimately real. So we should be modest in our claims as Christians. We should be strenuous in our attempts to do better. We should engage our local projects with determination, but admitting our likely failure. We should engage our ultimate end with thanksgiving. Have courage. I have conquered the world. Amen. Accept, O Lord, our thanks and praise for all that you have done for us. We thank you for the splendor of the whole creation, for the beauty of this world, for the wonder of life and for the mystery of love. We thank you for the blessing of family and friends and for the loving care which surrounds us on every side. We thank you for setting us at tasks which demand our best efforts and for leading us to accomplishments which satisfy and delight us. We thank you also for those disappointments and failures that lead us to acknowledge our dependence on you alone. Above all, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, for the truth of his word and the example of his life, for his steadfast obedience by which he overcame temptation, for his dying through which he overcame death, and for his rising to life again, in which we are raised to the life of your kingdom. Grant us the gift of your spirit that we may know him and make him known, and through him at all times and in all places may give thanks to you in all things. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
us every good and perfect thing. We offer back to you these our gifts of money, symbol of our time, resources, life energy, and commitment. May we who give these gifts and those who receive them be strengthened and encouraged in the life of faith, that we may continue your work of love and justice in the world. We pray these things in the name of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with each one of us now and forever. Amen. 